Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Raw Prospect Podcast. My name is Amy Nixon. Today is February 16th, 2023. And recording episode 150. How about that? Um, and joining me, as always, the Stat King himself is the Mike Green. What's up? Milestone episode 150 podcasts. Um, and that might not be exact, but we're calling it that because we've not that we've lost track of how many that we've done, but we've also gone wrong in our numbering somewhere. And we also skipped episode 100. So, um, but we've done enough content on this channel to know that we're around 150. And so we're just having a reset. Um, this is going to be a little bit different of an episode than we usually do. Um, we wanted to do something different for this episode. And so we're, we're hopping around to all sports, uh, here on today's episode, we're going to go NFL to golf, to baseball, then to the NBA as the NBA enters its all-star break. Um, so we've got a little of everything. They're smaller topics, uh, that we can fit into one episode that don't really warrant a whole, like. 20 30 minute segment on a separate podcast so we're just fitting all those smaller topics into today's show should be a fun episode should be a lot of fun discussion hopefully y'all enjoy it and make sure you like and subscribe to our channel and emmy has also added uh twitch so if you like being on twitch uh, our our episodes i believe will now stream on there as well so there you go Yes, it's at uh, Raw Prospect Pod, if you were wondering. But uh, go ahead and leave a like on the video. Uh, that really helps us push our videos out to more people. If you're listening, leave a five-star rating and review, and uh, we'll get right into this. Um, just on the one note on us being at 150, I just want to say, like, I didn't think we would get this far. I'm not going to lie. Um, and... You know, I have a lot of hopes for this podcast. I want to, you know, continue to grow it. I want to continue to get better. And I think a realistic goal for us is to get to 100, 100 subscribers by the end of the year and just gain some traction. Um, and we're going to do everything in our power to get there. So um, subscribing would really help us out if you're not yet. Um, anyway, so let's, let's do this. Let's get into it. Um, we're going to start out with the NFL coaching hires. Uh, we're just going to be ranking um, all, was it four or five of them? Uh, there are five of them. So, right. All five coaching hires from best to worst. Um, and I'll, I'll let you start us off with them. Well, five. let's just remind our audience that, first of all, a great Super Bowl. Um, maybe we'll mention that a little later at the very end if we have time. There were five head coaching openings in the NFL. The Indianapolis Colts, the Carolina Panthers, um, who else? The Denver Broncos, the Arizona Cardinals, and I believe uh, – who was the other one? God, I'm, oh, the Houston Texans. My bad. Right. Um, and they all hired different candidates. And then a couple days ago, after the Super Bowl – both coordinators from the Eagles got hired. Shane Steichen, the offensive coordinator, went to the Eagles. Uh, and then Jonathan Gannon, the Eagles defensive coordinator, 
went to the Cardinals. Um, Frank Reich went to the Carolina Panthers. Sean Payton to the Denver Broncos. And then San Francisco defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans to the Houston Texans. So that's just a little overview before we get into ranking. Um, for me, my number five, and I really have nothing against the hiring of Jonathan Gannon, I, but I'm taking a holistic approach to my rankings. And for me, Arizona is not in a very good situation right now. They have a quarterback that's coming off of a bad injury, a quarterback that in the past has seemed to not fully be committed. I mean, that's just me looking in from an outsider's perspective. Uh, and they're strapped for cap a little bit. Um, and we've both spoken on this to different varying degrees that we're not very favorable of the Arizona Cardinals situation right now. Uh, it seems like the Seahawks have a quarterback that's going to work for them, depending on how much money he demands in Geno Smith coming off a comeback player of the year type season. Uh, you know, they got a solid quarterback that can get them into the playoffs. We saw that. They got a bunch of good young players. The Niners, as far as I know, I mean, they got to solidify their quarterback situation. We don't know if that's going to be Brock Purdy or somebody else like Trey Lance or maybe someone from free agency. Uh, but regardless, I mean, that roster is really not going anywhere. Um, so I look at that division and it's just like, you know, I, it's going to be tough for Arizona in the situation that they're in. Again, it has nothing to do with Jonathan Gannon. Um, I think he'll do well. Um, and I'm sure he knows his football and that defense is in need of some help. So sure. He'll for sure be able to probably scout some personnel, help that defense that finished 24th in DVOA, which is defensive efficiency adjusted for a bunch, a bunch of different metrics. Um, I'm sure it'll help that defense, which has struggled in years past. Um, but once again, I, I always have a worry with hiring defensive coaches nowadays in the NFL. This hire could be elevated depending upon who he chooses to be his offensive coordinator because you have to get that side of the ball right in today's NFL or you're just not going to uh, be able to contend for uh, Super Bowls, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Um, I went with – Jonathan Gannon at five as well. Um, it's not really, you know, like I said, it's like like you said, really, it's not anything against him, but there are some questions about how he approaches things. Um, it kind of when he when he went about conforming that Eagles defense, right? Uh, especially in this Super Bowl, he really wanted to chop off the head like right from the get-go. And that kind of put the Eagles in some tough spots. Um, and that really put them in a position to be um, exposed a little bit in some areas. Um, and I want to see him be able to make adjustments. That's one thing that I don't think he was able to do. Um, uh, not really in a big picture sense. He made a great adjustment from – uh, last year to this year in terms of uh, what he does defensively, but in-game adjustments as a head coach, how will he do in that sense? 
Um, and how will he be as a locker room manager? Nobody really, nobody really knows. So it's, it's a lot of question marks. Um, it's not to say that it's 100% chance of failing. Cause that's definitely not the case. You have a former number one pick at quarterback, a, a guy who's capable of being an MVP candidate when he's at his best. Um, and I think, uh, with a little bit of a roster reset, you have a couple of years of leeway here. And I think a couple of years down the line, if you can get the defensive side of the ball correct, you could be looking at a very good team. Yeah, I agree with you. Let's go alternating. So let's hear your number four first, and then I'll give you my number four and my number three. And we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah. Um, This one was tough, but my number four, I ended up going with uh, – it was like a, a 4A and 4B per se, but I ended up going with Frank Reich by default just because of how I feel about D'Amico Ryans. Um, I know Frank Reich is a offensive guy, um, and that tends to be the way to go in the NFL, and D'Amico Ryans is not. Uh, however, I just think um, Frank Reich, I think there's a ceiling to what he brings as a coach. I think he's very good at raising the ceiling of a, you know, say a mediocre roster. But I think um, he has at times struggled to, you know, find the advantages when his roster is at that level uh, of possibly winning a Super Bowl. He hasn't been able to um, find those advantages. Um, You know, whether he can address those things and progress as a head coach, um, there's definitely a chance that he will, but I kind of see him in kind of the tier of a Ron Rivera, a guy who, if you have him in the building, you will win games, but I don't know if you'll be able to win Super Bowls, if that's, if that makes sense. Um, so I have Frank Reich at four. You know, I have to agree with you. Um, first of all, let's, I mean, Frank Reich is a very good head football coach. Right. Even with all that turmoil at the quarterback position the past couple of years in Indianapolis, with the turnover from, you know, Phillip Rivers, which they actually made the playoffs with Phillip Rivers, but he was in his last year as quarterback, to Carson Wentz, which didn't work out, um, to even Matt Ryan. Subpar quarterback play for most of that time period, he was able to elevate this Colts team, which – let's be honest, struggled through injuries and a whole lot of other stuff to a 40 and 33 and one record um, in that division where you have another good team in Tennessee. Um, So even without that elite quarterback, he was able to keep things above water. I respect the job, you know, that he did in Indianapolis, but that's aggressive. That's an aggressive ownership group uh, in Indianapolis, as we've seen. Uh, They decided to move on in a different direction. We'll talk about their hire later. I think with Frank Wright, you're inheriting a very young roster that has a lot of potential, especially on the defensive side of the football. I mean, we've seen all the good young players that the Panthers have on that side. I mean, Derek Brown, the defensive tackle out of Auburn, who's been awesome for them. Uh, The edge rusher, Brian Burns. Uh, The cornerback, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Matt Corral? No, the cornerback. Um, oh, corner. Uh, J.C. Horn. From South Carolina. J.C. Horn. 
JC Horn, he I think right. he's like the next star at that position. Very underrated. Uh, the safety, Jeremy Chen. I mean, they're loaded with young defensive players on that side of the ball. I love what he did in his first couple of days as head coach going out and hiring Jim Caldwell. He, he's basically going to be like a second like, like sort of offensive coordinator slash assistant head coach on that staff. He'll provide uh, another voice in Frank Reich's ear at times. He adds some experience to that staff. A lot of head coaching to me is who you hire on that on your staff, um, especially in today's NFL and more so in college football, but especially in the NFL where I just think when you have limits to what you can do as a coach, and that's nothing against Frank Reich, it's just I think he has the ceiling as a head coach, you got to be able to hire the right coordinators that can elevate you to that next level. Um, and so the big question right now in Carolina is, even though it's a solid roster, good young players on both sides of the ball, even though you just traded away Christian McCaffrey, you have really two good young running backs in Deontay Foreman and Chuba Hubbard, two guys I really like, good one-two punch. You have uh, DJ Moore at receiver, some other good young pieces. You could probably go get another receiver in the draft if you wanted to. Um, the offensive line is making progress. Uh, there's still work to be done there, but uh, offensive line, I mean, it's a really good young roster. Uh, guys are going to be under contract. You're not paying a whole lot of money to these guys. Question is, what is what does this team do at the quarterback position? Frank Reich has struggled to get the quarterback right the past couple of years in Indianapolis, and that's really what they're going to need to elevate this roster to the next level, to playoff contention and maybe beyond. But it's not to say it's a bad hire that we put them for. It's just there are a couple questions, lingering questions. Um, but I do think it's still a really solid hire. And looking at it right now, I mean, Frank Reich is probably the – I mean, I really like what Arthur Smith is doing in uh, um, Atlanta right now. But if I had to say right now, Frank Reich is probably the first or second best head coach in that division. Yeah, I, I would definitely have to agree with that. That division, oh man, that division is. If 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 nothing changes, if it if we go into next season with things standing as they are right now, which obviously we won't, that division is going to be. Let me get into my yeah. Fire. Yeah. Let me get into but, my number three real fast. Um, yep. Number three, I went with D'Amico Ryan's. Um, I've thought about this more and more since it happened. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, now, as you know, the league has pivoted to offense, um, offensive-minded head coaches, but and defensive coaches are sort of getting left behind in a way. And, I mean, there's other factors to this, of course. you got to have the right quarterback. Uh, you got to have a solid roster that's not devoid of talent like the Texans is right now. Uh, you also have to have a good GM and a good owner. Um, but I think, as we've seen, the league has pivoted to offense, and that's where I worry about these defensive coaches just not having the correct feel for the offensive side of the football uh, coming in. That's where I think the offensive coordinator hire and your, who you hire on your staff is so important. But if you look at what D'Amico Ryan is, he played in the NFL 
for, I believe, six years with the Houston Texans. So he has familiarity with this particular franchise. And he's got experience on coaching staffs at higher positions, such as defensive coordinator. So he'll be able to really command that defensive side of the football, scout talent, do all those sorts of things. But also, he knows how to relate to the players. And I think players will like that, especially what's going to be probably a pretty young team in Houston. They have draft capital. They have a bunch of that, the number two and 12 picks. So you can get two really, really good, probably starting level players uh, that will make you make you better right away. I'm assuming you have uh, a good amount of cap space, the sixth most cap amount of cap space in the NFL. Um, you have a lot to build on. Uh, my main question in Houston right now is their, their general manager, Nick Casario. I mean, he really hasn't done much. He's acquired some draft capital and give him credit for that. But at some point, you got to start acquiring um, some next-level talent through the draft with all the high picks that you've had. And then also um, just building out this roster the right way from the inside out, from that offensive line, defensive line, to everywhere else. And you got to get the quarterback right, of course. Um, but I think for the reasons that I mentioned, the fact that he played in the league with this same franchise, he's got familiarity in the building. He's obviously a fantastic defensive mind, maybe the best in the game. Uh, there's an argument to be made. Um, I think he's... How old is he? I don't know how young he is, but I assume he's pretty young. Uh, it feels like the past couple hires, and he has a lot of capital to work with, both in terms of cap space and draft capital. But it just seems like for me with the Texans, the past couple of hires felt like they had a short shelf life, and they did. This feels like they finally found a guy that's going to be here and build this thing up for the next four or five years throughout the length of his contract. Right. Exactly. Um, I went to with D'Amico Ryans at number three as well. Um, and it's mainly because D'Amico Ryans is exactly what this team needs right now. They need some type of identity, some type of, um, culture in the room. Um, uh, one analyst I listened to, Marcus Whitman, uh, that franchise guy, made a really good analogy. Um, they were Pinocchio, but they want to become a real boy again. That's what D'Amico Ryans does for them. They want to become a real NFL team again, become competitive again. And um, they've been a feisty team, obviously, under Lovey Smith, but they want to get to that next level as a team. Um, and one thing that you know with D'Amico Ryans is the players are going to respond to him. They're going to, they, I mean, everything that I've heard out of that 49ers locker room, like um, just from reports and uh, what the players say about him, um, the players love the guy. I mean, when you love your coach and you would run through a wall for your coach, that stuff matters. Um, I kind of see it in a way um, kind of similar to the Dan Campbell hire, except with D'Amico, he was a former player, I think, there's that extra level of, you know, I would say empathy since he played in that Texans organization. He's kind of been in the shoes of some of these players that are playing on the Texans right now. Um, so that's there's that extra layer of, of relatability. Um, I, I think it's a 
grade A higher, in my opinion, for what they needed. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'll just do. I'll just go ahead with my number two and number one. We're already twenty minutes in, so we gotta speed yep. up just a tad. Um, this was close for me. Uh, we're down to Sean Payton. We're both at the same list so far. We're both down to Sean Payton with the Broncos and Shane Steichen with the Colts. For me, I went Sean Payton two and um, Shane Steichen one. Let me start with Shane Steichen. Uh, for me, with the Colts, what has been their problem? It's evaluating quarterback talent. Uh, the past couple of years, they have not been able to get that position right. Obviously, there are some other problems there. Uh, I believe they need to um, solidify their receiving core. I love Michael Pittman, but they need some other pieces. Uh, they have a couple good young guys, but no number one, no true number one in my opinion. Jonathan Taylor is obviously great. Uh, their offensive line has struggled with injuries, but it's it's above average. I mean, you can win with that offensive line, and then their defense. I mean, they got some really solid pieces on the defense. I mean, I we've talked about it. The Colts are a solid roster. Uh, there are some holes here and there, but the thing that I love about Shane Steichen is it seems like. Just from an outsider's perspective, he knows he has a fascinating approach to identifying the quarterback, like having an eye for quarterback talent and then also developing young quarterback talent. If the Colts want to go young in the draft instead of going the route that they've gone the past couple of years, getting a veteran, like win now guy and plugging them in, if they want to draft a guy like a CJ Stroud or a Will Levis. Uh, I know I don't know if you get Bryce Young at number four. Um, but if you want to draft a guy like that, a younger guy, Shane Steichen was the OC in Los Angeles, Justin Herbert's rookie year. How did that work out? He was also in Philly for the development and the rise of Jalen Hurts. Um, and he's been elsewhere as well. So I think He's got an eye for the quarterback position. Whether the Colts go young or go for another veteran win-now type guy uh, will be an interesting situation. That's discussion for another episode. But I just believe that Steichen, young, innovative, offensive mind, uh, I think he'll. I think he's going to do well in Indianapolis. And that is a much easier division. I mean, I know Jacksonville's will be solid. There's a potential, depending on what Tennessee does at the quarterback position, that they could be pretty solid as well. But I think that division, uh, you have a lot better chance winning that division than what the Broncos face in an uphill battle, um, you know, getting to the top of the AFC uh, West. Now, Peyton, I mean, I think these two guys are probably like 1A and 1B. I mean, there's an argument to be made that Peyton's the better hire because of his experience and he's an established guy as a head coach and the Broncos had to take a big swing, which I definitely give them credit for. I think this will work. Let me be very clear. I think it will work. I think we're going to, you're never as bad as you are. You're, what's the saying? You're never as good as you think, but you're never as bad as you think. And I don't think Russell Wilson is near as bad as we saw last year. Uh, the offensive line had injuries from the get-go. Get that offensive line right. It's a really solid roster, and Sean Payton will work with Russell Wilson, I think, very well. Um, and I think the Broncos will be a lot better 
next year. Now, where does that place them in terms of title contention in the playoff race? Well, that's for a different discussion. But I do think either way you you slice the you know slice the bread. Um, these guys are like one A and one B for me. Yeah. Um, I went a different direction. Um, I went with Shane Steichen at two and Sean Payton at one, but I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, I'll start with Steichen. I think, um, the great thing about him is his, uh, feel for play calling. Like there's a, you know, there's a lot of coaches that, you know, are very creative with their play calling, but they don't know how to flow into certain plays to get the matchups and the looks they want uh, for a said play. Um, and there's a certain cadence to play calling. There's, you know, there's certain ways to set up plays ahead of time. And Shane, Shane Steichen is a master of that part of the game. Um, he, you know, we saw with the Eagles, their play calling was top notch the entire year. And uh, they could just, it seems like they have they had an answer for everything. Um, if a team stopped one thing, they had another thing they could go to. And the other thing I love about his offense, um, and you could credit talent as well. That Eagles offense had a lot of talent, of course, um, but they they attack defensive rules rather than um, rather than you know matchups. Like they. Um, force you to break your defensive rules, say in a zone, you know, stretching out the zone or whatever the case may be. Um, he has ways he can do that. And I think that play calling aspect is going to really help out the guys that are already in house. You mentioned, you mentioned Michael Pittman. Um, I think the offense will be better from the get go, just from him being in the building and getting a fresh start um, at quarterback presumably with a rookie quarterback. Um, now to the Broncos, I think, you know, it's interesting if you think about it this way, they technically traded Bradley Chubb for Sean Payton. Because um, if you think about it, you traded uh, uh, Bradley Chubb for the first round pick you traded for Sean Payton. So if you look, if you look at it that way, it's, it's interesting, I guess. Um, considering you weren't going to play Bradley Chubb anyway, or you were not excited about it. Um, so I think if you look at it from that sense, I think it's a trade you're perfectly fine with. It is a lot to give up. Obviously, it's a Sean pick, but with Sean Payton in the building, you have confidence that he'll be able to work to Russell Wilson's strengths. And also, the other side of the thing is just the game management aspect. Um, I think what the Broncos will want to do a lot more next year is control the clock and help out that defense. Um, it's not just about, you know, scoring the like scoring unlimited amounts of points. It's also just about sustaining some drives and giving your defense some rest because with the Greatness of that defense, I'll say it. I mean, this is greatness. I mean, they were tops in the league in almost every category. Um, with how good they are, you just want to be able to help them out and you'll be able to win games. 
Um, you have a blueprint there. And I think with Javante Williams coming back healthy, with the offensive line coming back healthy, I think there's a lot to be hopeful of if you're a Broncos fan. Obviously, last year didn't go as planned, but a lot of things went wrong from the get-go. So I think, obviously, you factored the division into the argument. That's a whole conversation for another day. I think the division is, you know, it's it's not going to be easy. That's for sure. But I think... Um, I think they can be competitive. Yeah, I certainly do as well. And you look at the Raiders situation now, you know, not having Derek Carr, they got to figure out their quarterback situation. I mean, I think with that roster, if Russell Wilson returns to anything as close, you know, close to what he once was as an MVP candidate in Seattle, they certainly could compete. But we have to remember that uh, we do have questions with the Chargers at the head coaching position, but in a couple other spots as well. But that's a very talented team when healthy with Justin Herbert. And then obviously the Chiefs uh, won't be going anywhere anytime soon as long as Mahomes and Andy Reid are, are there. So, And they're A-plus at every single level. I mean, their owner, uh, Hunt, he's an A-plus. Uh, Brett Veach, their GM, he's an A+. Uh, Andy Reid, he's an A+. Patrick Mahomes, A+. I mean, they are – I mean, there are a few franchises in NFL history that have at the same time have had owner, GM, coach, and quarterback all at that, like, particular level, in my opinion. So, um, but, yeah, we'll see where it goes. As I said – I think you can flip them around, 1A, 1B. It just depends on how you look at it. Um, And I will say, I mean, they're on the right side of the ball. Offense is the side that you want to be on nowadays. Not to say that defensive coaches still can't succeed, but um, offense is definitely the favorable side nowadays in the NFL. But with that, let's kick off our golf coverage for 2023. It's been a while since we've talked golf. We're going to Real quickly touch on Tiger Woods' return, his first round in seven months today at Riviera at the Genesis Open, I believe it's called. Um, And then we're going to real quick touch on guys that we think could be potential first-time major winners because a common theme in golf the past couple of years has been we've gotten a lot of guys who have won their first major. I believe three of the four major winners last year were all first-time major winners. Scotty Scheffler, Matthew Fitzpatrick, and Cam Smith. Um, Justin Thomas was the only guy who won that wasn't a first-time major winner last year. And then the year before that, we had Hideki Matsuyama at the Masters and so on and so forth. So um, let's real quick touch on Tiger because that's the big story right now. And then we'll touch on the list of guys that we think can be first-time major winners. So I'll let you start off. Um, first of all, what did you see from Tiger today? Did you watch any of the tournament? And then also, what do you expect from him, not only moving forward in this tournament, but just going into the season? Well, I think it's good to see him back out there, first of all. Um, he still had a little bit of a waddle to his walk, but it didn't seem like he was in you know, a big amount of pain, uh, which is encouraging. He did, you know... 
adjust his ankle brace here and there, but nothing too major. I think the biggest thing I saw was um, his shot-making ability is still there, and his short game is still there. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I only watched bits and pieces of the round, but there was the up and down he had on hole six. He was short of the green. He was about five yards off the green. He pulls out putter and puts it to about a foot. Um, There's... It's just that touch that he has that, that, you know, that uncanny ability to be able to um, pull off shots that most can't pull off. Um, And, you know, as long as he has that, you know, short game in his back pocket, he's going to have a chance to win tournaments. Um, And, you know, the ball striking is there and he's hitting it a a decently long way. Um, Yeah. I think there's a lot to be encouraged by. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's fair to have expectations um, too high, especially not right now. But I think if you look at things big picture, I think by the time we get to the Open Championship, maybe even the U.S. Open, the last two majors of the year, I think if he goes into those majors in form, I think you could be looking at maybe him being a you know top five six betting favorite um and whenever he's playing let alone in the mix um it just helps the sport so much yeah i mean i think john middlecoff who i've been listening to his podcast recently does three and out on the volume which is calling cowards uh podcast network which has a lot of great stuff you also check that out um but you know he does the three and out podcast which is a football nfl based podcast and then he also has the go low podcast on the same feed where he talks about golf um and i think he put it the right way we often say that tiger woods moves the needle for golf uh but i think he put it correctly when he said that tiger woods doesn't move the needle he is the needle because people i mean people flood to watch golf when tiger i mean he is must see tv um i do agree with you i watched most of the round uh, on and off i I watched you know the future grouping with thomas mcelroy and woods uh i was very impressed with his gait with his pace and the way he was walking. I thought he walked with a lot of confidence. I didn't see him like wince too much. Now, obviously I didn't watch that closely, but uh, I thought he looked, he looked a lot healthier than I think we've seen in past round last year. Uh, He obviously has uh, the leg injury from the car accident, but he also has been dealing with some foot pain, I believe, or ankle issue. So, Regardless, I mean, he's dealing with a lot right now. And we know his body is breaking down. But at the age of 47, to be walking like he was on the course today, which I believe was he looked fine to me, uh, not too much pain. I think his walk looked better. Uh, and to turn on the Jets at the end of the round, uh, like he did, with the short game, obviously, uh, hitting greens in the right spots, and then – if he makes putts, man, I mean, like we saw at the end, he can catch fire and he can still compete. I mean, he said it 
he does not enter tournaments nowadays if he doesn't think he can like win win those tournaments. Now, do I think he actually thinks that he could win the tournaments? I mean, maybe he's fucking Tiger Woods, but I think when he says that, he just means like, oh, I can go make birdies. I can still turn it on. I can still compete with these guys. And he showed that. And you mentioned the thing that stood out most to me, aside from the end where he really turned it on, because it feels like in past rounds, especially last year, he seemed to fall off like once he got later into the round and understandably so. But you mentioned the ball striking and what he did off the tee. I mean, he was long off the tee today and his ball speed uh, was really impressive. Hole two, 174 miles per hour. Hole three, 180 miles per hour. Hole eight, 177 miles per hour. Hole nine, 178 miles per hour. Hole 12, 177 miles per hour. Got up to 180 on hole 13, 178 on hole 15, one or 177 and 177 on 17 and 18. And, I mean, he was consistently hitting 300, 315, 320-yard drives. Uh, and the average ball speed for the PGA Tour right now is 172 miles per hour. So um, he was – above average in all those categories. He was hitting fairways. He looked really good. Now, the main question is, because he said it himself, he has not played 72 holes four days, like four rounds in a row, four days consecutively in a long time. Um, so how does his body, like, continue to progress throughout the week? We'll have to see. That's going to be the main question with him moving forward. But I do think that, if he finishes well and he feels good coming out of this potential tournament, he makes the cut, he feels good, he finishes the tournament, uh, maybe in even a good position. I mean, he's two under right now, so we'll see how he does. I think there's a potential you could see him at the Players' Championship. Um, and then obviously the four majors, maybe another tournament mixed into there. I mean, it just depends on how his body feels. But I think today was a really good start. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was really good to see him out driving Justin Thomas and Roy McIlroy. Yeah. Like those are two of the fastest guys on tour. So if you're out driving those dudes, then you're doing pretty well. Um, not bad for a 47 year old guy. So right. um, let's move on to our last golf segment here. Um, we're just going to be having an open discussion about who we think could break through and win their first majors this year. Um, we have, a, there's a lot of candidates. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll just start off and say, um, Cam Smith currently at number four in the world. I think he's a guy that gets, um, wait, no, he won that complete. No, 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 no. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to say Cam Smith. Sorry. I, I meant to say, um, Xander Shoffley. Yeah, uh, I just had a complete brain fart there. Sorry. And Cam Smith is with Liv, too. I don't know why I said that. Okay. Um, Xander Schauffele is a guy who gets overlooked a lot. Currently number six in the world. Um, he, he has obviously won a gold medal. That's not really a major, but it's a major tournament, I guess. Um, but he has that pedigree of winning big events. He's won the Tour Championship twice, I believe. Um, and he's just a guy who is 
solid. Um, he's, you know, a really good putter. He's not, you know, the longest guy on tour, but he's just solid in everything, in every aspect, in my opinion. Um, another guy I thought of was Victor Hovland. Um, he's a guy that's been lurking a lot on tour. Um, he's won a lot of events um, here re- recently. Um, and he, he's honestly a fan favorite. He's become a fan favorite out on tour um, out of Oklahoma State. He's just really found his groove on the PJ tour. He's won a lot on the European tour, but right around, you know, the fall series of events like hero world challenge, all those events around that time, he had a, he had a run where he won like three or four events in five or six starts. So he has the ability to turn it on at any time. And when he's playing at his absolute best, I'd say, there's a extremely short list of guys that can even hang with him when he's at his absolute best. Yeah. Hovland's in definitely an interesting case. I think for him, it's all about uh, his short game, particularly with the putter uh, and the times that I've watched him seems at some points in times he can struggle uh, in uh, the short game aspect. I think those are two, I mean, those are two names that obviously jump off the page when you look at the world golf rankings. Um, uh, Patrick Cantley is a guy who I just automatically think of because he's been around in certain majors uh, and he's been close before, but just hasn't gotten over the hump. Uh, and he currently is at number five in the world. So, you know, he finishes in a lot of top fives, top tens, but still hasn't gotten over that hump. I mean, he's just a guy that comes to mind. Uh, I don't know particularly much about – I mean, I assume he's playing particularly well right now because he's number five in the world, but I haven't seen him in a while. Um, Max Homa was the guy that sort of popped off to me. I mean, he just won a couple weeks ago. Um, I believe it was at Torrey Pines. Um, he's playing really good golf right now. I believe he's up there on the leaderboard at this particular event, the Genesis. I mean, he's flying hot right now. Uh, Tony Finau is another dude that still uh, kind of like Patrick Cantlay just hasn't gone over the hump. And then you can even go down the list to like Cam Young. Uh, I don't mean to steal all the names. Uh, Tyrell Hatton is a guy that I really like down at number 24 in the world, but he's on the rise. I mean, there are a lot of names here and we could go on and on, but uh, do you, do you have any last thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I think the, tough thing about the PJ tour is you never really know um, who the next guy up will be until they just show up. Um, right. That's kind of how it was with, um, I believe it was, you know, I, I guess you could kind of say with Scotty Scheffler in a way, obviously he had that, uh, he had good showings enough to where he made it onto the Ryder cup team, but he made it as one of the last, uh, guys to make it in. Um, and then once he made that Ryder Cup, he just started winning everything to the point where he got all the way up to number one of the world and won the Masters. So guys didn't just go on hot streaks. And you never really know, you never really know who the next guy will be on a hot streak. But um, a guy right now that has been on a hot streak, hot streak is Tom Kim. Um, he's 
I believe, has the same amount of wins at his age as Tiger Woods did, or, or is there there's some crazy stat like that that I saw about a week ago on Tom Kim. Um, he, I believe, it has to do with his worldwide wins. I don't think he's won. Um, I think he's won one or two on the PGA Tour so far, but worldwide over the past year, there hasn't been a lot of guys in better form than Tom Kim. Um, he, I believe he's 20 years old. And um, if you didn't watch the President's Cup, you probably don't know who he is, but he's a guy who's fiery. He has a lot of, a lot of personality on the golf course, which is good for the sport. Uh, and... I could easily see him winning a major. I think he has the mental game to do it. I think he has that confidence that you need to go out there and perform in those big events. Um, kind of like, say, a Brooks Kepka, except a lot more open about his confidence. Brooks Kepka has that kind of closed-off demeanor when he's on the course, but Tom Kim just wears his heart on his sleeve and... Um, I think you just need more of that in golf. I, I'd I'd love to see him win a major this year. Yeah, I was actually introduced to Tom Kim a couple of days ago. He's currently 15th in the world, which is impressive. I didn't know that until a couple of days ago coming into this tournament. And he was actually talking about his infatuation with Tiger and seeing playing in the same tournament as Tiger Woods, which I thought was pretty cool today on the broadcast or the stream whatever it was um, when I was watching the, the round. So uh, that, I mean, that'll be interesting thing to watch. And let me just say, before we move on, this will probably be about an hour and a half episode, but that's okay. Um, I'm sort of on a golf kick right now. Um, I mean, the, the, the waste management really got me into it. Uh, you know, I started with the pro-am and the farmer's insurance, of course, but, Really, the waste management really got me going. And then this week, of course, with Tiger playing. And then we got some bigger events next month that I think we'll be doing more. We'll start doing more golf content with the match play and the Players' Championship. And then we get right into major season. So we'll be talking a good amount of golf on this podcast. We'll have to come up with some creative ways that we can do it. But the more I watch, I think the easier it will be to talk about it. Um, And that's something that I really haven't done a whole lot of in the past outside of the majors. So hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to spice up our golf content for y'all uh, this year, but let's move on um, to baseball. Uh, there are a bunch of new rule changes that have been, let me just say this. They've been being tested down at the minor league level for their effectiveness I mean, over and over again, the past couple of years, they've been being tested. And I think they're being implemented for two reasons. Number one, make it a better viewing experience for the fans. Uh, And we'll get into the rule changes here in a second. Uh, And then number two is just create more action there. I think these rules are designed to give fans what they want. And that's more action throughout the entirety of baseball games, particularly at the major league baseball level. Um, and I think more action in games will draw the younger audience to the game of baseball, which 
it's gotten better over the past couple of years because there are so many good young players nowadays. But at the same time, they're still sort of lacking in that area uh, for the younger generation of fans like the NBA has, like the NFL has. Uh, they've struggled in that department. So I think these rules, if they work out, which I think they will to some degree, I think it's going to create more action to a certain extent, to what extent we don't know yet. But it's been proven down at the minor league level that it does work. And then just make it overall a better viewing experience for the casual baseball fan. So let's get into the rules. And we'll start with what I think is the most important one, um, which is going to be the pitch clock. This year, Major League Baseball is implementing a pitch clock. Uh, and so here's the rule. Pitchers now have 15 seconds to throw a pitch when the bases are empty. So once they receive the ball back from the umpire or the catcher, they have a 15-second clock that starts, and they have to start the motion of throwing the baseball before those 15 seconds are over, or it's an automatic ball that gets awarded against them in that particular at-bat. It's an automatic ball. They don't start the throwing motion before those 15 seconds. Um, and they'll have 20 seconds with a runner on base. So they get an extra five seconds if a runner is on base. Um, and once again, if they don't start their motion uh, in that time period, uh, it's an automatic ball. Um, now, the hitter does come into play here as well. If they're not in the batter's box, because a lot of times you'll see the hitters, you know, they're messing with their glove, they're, you know, hitting the dirt with their bat, they're scratching the dirt with their cleats. I mean, they take a lot of time to get set for a pitch um if they're not ready to receive a pitch in the batter's box by the time the clock hits eight seconds it's an automatic strike uh that gets penalized against them um so for me overall i really like uh this rule it, it might be a little i mean they're gonna they're gonna test it it's being implemented when spring training games start next week uh but i think it, you know, it's been proven at the minor league level that this is going to shorten the game, uh, which that's what fans want. The average major league baseball game last season was three hours, four minutes, three hours, four minutes for an average. I mean, that's the average. That's the middle. That's the median. Um, and the year before that, it was three hours, 10 minutes, which was the all time high uh, for major league baseball. And fans just don't have that time to spend watching a game. Uh, surveys have shown that fans want the game around two hours, 30 minutes at the most. And at the minor league level, this pitch clock, which has been tested the past couple of years, has reduced uh, the time for baseball games uh, by up to 25%. So I think this is a fantastic rule. There might be some shakiness with it, figuring out stuff, getting used to it in the beginning but I really like it. What do you think? Um, well, for me personally, I think um, just from my perspective, just like turning on a baseball game every once in a while, just like just as a casual fan, it will just make things flow a lot better. Um, as someone who 
watches basketball and watches football. Obviously, there's a lot of stoppages in football as well, but it never feels like the game just stops, like other than obviously commercials. Um, but when like the players are on the field, it never just feels like you're just waiting for stuff to happen. Um, and with baseball, I think it'll just give some more action, I guess. It'll just um, not have the viewers waiting as much, just not wasting the viewers' time. I think, I mean, I don't know if it'll have a huge effect on viewership right away, but I think um, long-term, I think it will have a good effect on baseball. Yeah. All right, let's move to the next most important rule change which we talked about during the season last year, but that is the shift has been bit the defensive shift on the infield has been banned. No more shifts in ba- at the major league level and at the minor league level for that matter, but that's a different story. Um, what does that mean for those of you who don't know? Uh, at the time a pitch is thrown now, all four infielders, the third baseman, the shortstop, the second baseman, and the first baseman, which is a typical infield nowadays in Major League Baseball. All four infielders are required to be on the infield dirt or the infield grass. So you have the grass, then you have the dirt, then you have the outfield grass. At the time a pitch is thrown, they have to either be standing fully on the infield dirt or the infield grass. Um, and there has to be two players on either side of second base. So you can't have three players over here and one player over here like you could with the shift to adjust to uh, the tendencies of a particular hitter. Um, And what what they're trying to do here is induce more action. Because if you look at it, last year the league-wide batting average was down to 243 league-wide average. That was the lowest since 1968. And the lack of singles, the lack of doubles that are being taken, that were taken away by the shift uh, has had a large effect on the decline in offense, overall offense and action runners on base in baseball. Uh, And so I think some people don't like it. Uh, You can still actually shift in the outfield based on it hitters, tendencies, fly balls, things like that. You can even bring infielders, outfielders in from the outfield if you want to, uh, to be closer like on the outfield grass like a shift where you have an extra guy on either side. Uh, But you cannot shift your infielders no longer. So, uh, again, you can shift your outfielders, but you can't shift your infielders. What do you think? I see it as just – making rules to help more offense, just drive more, uh, more action, I guess. Um, the NBA and the NFL have both made a ton of rules like this. Uh, we've seen it in the NBA with, you know, not calling travels, not calling carries as much, you know, just the way people dribble now is just provides a lot more entertainment than the way people dribbled, say, in 1995 or whatever the case may be. Uh, so little things like that, um, you know, 
I think is extremely good for baseball. I that's one of the biggest gripes that I have with baseball is they just seem like they're so stuck in their ways. They kind of, you know, they have a older fan base that likes tradition and they like their unwritten rules. They like their, you know, structure of the way things have been. Um, and any little change here and there, they've been strictly against it. And now that they're finally starting to get with the program and uh, promote offensive action, I think, you know, it's it's great for the sport. That's that's why I enjoy college baseball more than the MLB at times, just because more stuff happens in college baseball. Right, and speaking of college baseball, season starts tomorrow, so that'll be interesting. And we'll we'll do some Patreon content on college baseball. Make sure that you check out our Patreon. Two more things on baseball, and then we'll move to our last topic, which is the NBA. Um, number one, uh, dis- let's talk about pickoffs and disengagement. And then we'll talk. Well, actually, first let me mention the bases have actually gotten larger. There are larger individual bases now. Uh, they went from 15 inches on either side to 18 inches on either side. So they've <laughs> – please don't. Okay. Um, so they've gotten bigger by, by three inches on either side. Uh, and basically what that's trying to do, we don't have to discuss it, um, but basically what they're trying to do with that is eliminate injuries by giving players more room uh, around the base, uh, and then also uh, increase the amount of action in base running that we see, particularly with stolen bases. Uh, you have a bigger base, a bigger area that you can slide into now if you are a player trying to steal a base. Um, so we'll see how that works. I'm not sure if it will have any effect whatsoever. It, they've seen a little bit of an effect in terms of amount of stolen bases attempts and successful rate with stolen bases at the minor league level, but we'll see how it translates to the uh, major league level, but that's just something to keep in mind. The bases are bigger, trying to eliminate injuries and increase base running. Um, And then also uh, disengagement. And basically I'm sure you've been watching baseball and there are times when the pitcher uh, in and at bat will with a runner on first base will continually to throw over to um, first base to try to pick off the runner uh, to try to catch them sleeping or to catch them stealing uh, because they're preoccupied with that runner being on first who may be trying to steal second. Uh, and they just continually throw over to first base over and over again. And it get, it just gets repetitive. The fans start to boo. And then it's just sort of boring in that way. Um, and the batter's just standing there. They have implemented a couple rules to sort of eliminate this. First of all, you can only, uh, let's see, forget the, the actual rule. You can only disengage, meaning you step off the mound, you fake a pickoff, or you attempt to pick off. You can only step off the pitcher's rubber twice in the net bat. And you can't do it consecutively or else will be called, which means all runners advance a base, including the runner at home. So if there's a runner on first and a runner on second, um, if you uh, 
disengage more than twice in that at bat, the runner on second will go to third, the runner on first will go to second, and the batter that's at home plate will go to will go to um will go to first. So all of a sudden you've got yourself in a bases loaded situation. Um, so every time that a, that a pitcher disengages now more than twice in that bat, whether that's stepping off the mound in any form or fashion, um, trying attempting pickoffs, or just uh, faking pickoffs and not throwing pitches, I mean, the the MLB is serious about this. They're going to be enforcing those balks, and I think that that will be good. Uh, because it will speed up the game. There won't be as many throwovers to first base. Uh, and it'll make it easier on the runners at first base to attempt um, stolen base, stolen bases. Because once that pitcher has thrown over twice, they can't throw over anymore now. Uh, so then you're just free to run if you're the runner at first base, which I think will be cool. Yeah, definitely. And, oh, my goodness, it – I can't speak enough on how annoying it is to watch playoff baseball. And, you know, you're on the edge of your seat. You're kind of like locked into the game. And then, you know, the pitcher just starts continually trying to pick off a player on first place. Like, and everybody in the crowd, everybody watching knows that it won't work, that you're not going to get the guy out, but they just keep doing it over and over and over again. It's extremely annoying. And I'm really glad they did something about it. Um, it's kind of like um, the NBA with, you know, uh, take fouls like that just keep from having fast breaks happen um, and how the NBA kind of got rid of that part of the game. Um, kind of in that same sense, um, it just raises the entertainment value. It gives people a reason to keep watching that are watching. Um, and you know, there's really not much else to say other than that. I think it's just a common theme with all these rules. I think, um, it's good that the MLB has a clear vision for how they want the game to look. And that's more than I could say before. That's for sure. Right. There are also going to be massive changes to the schedule this year including a reduction in the amount of times you play your divisional opponents. You used to play uh, your divisional opponents 19 times each throughout the 162-game season. They're reducing that to, I believe it's 13 games each. So you're still playing those teams a lot, but not quite as much as 19. And what that's going to allow them to do is every team will play every team this year in the regular season. It's no more like you only get three intra-league series, you know, AL against NL for each team a year. No, every team is playing every single team this year. So you're going to get those matchups that, that you want, you know, Yankees against the Dodgers, Mets against the Yankees. Not that you don't already get that on a yearly basis, but it'll be more frequent. Uh, Braves against the Yankees. I mean, Astros against the Braves. I mean, these – all those good teams from each league are going to get to play each other throughout the regular season. It's not just going to be you're playing your division over and over and over again, and you're playing this team over and over and over again, and you're mainly playing the AL if you're the AL team, and you're mainly playing the NL if you're an NL team. No, 
every single team is playing every single team in the regular season this year. So I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I I didn't even realize that they didn't play every team. I, it just kind of feels like um, from what I've experienced in terms of uh, as a sports fan, every league has kind of had it where you play every team at least once. But um, I I guess it's, you know, it's interesting. I think um, just from a marketing standpoint, you can market those possible World Series matchups or those re those World Series rematches as well. Um, from that standpoint, I think you can really um, draw in viewership um, and have those matchups that people are familiar with because there's there's a not a majority, but there's a per, a pretty large percentage of baseball fans that just watch maybe the last month of the regular season and then the playoffs. So um, for that reason, I think that really helps out the product. Yeah, and you're exactly right. For the casual baseball fans out there that aren't really tied at the heart to one particular team and aren't watching that team a whole lot, I mean, they're not sitting down to watch baseball games every night um, until later in the season after the All-Star break going into the playoffs. Um, So I think the scheduling aspect is definitely interesting. We'll talk about it more as we get closer to the season, but spring training is starting this week. Spring training games are starting later next week. Uh, and that's when we'll really start to get into, we'll finish off our off season conversation. And then later as we get into March, we'll start previewing the season. So that's exciting. Baseball is about six weeks away from opening day and MLB. All right. With that, we're about hour, six minutes in with the next 15, 20 minutes or so. Let's talk some NBA. We haven't talked a whole lot of awards so far this year. In fact, I don't think we've done it at all. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the MVP race and then also uh, the Rookie of the Year race. So I see we have MVP race at the bottom. Um, If you had to rank your top three candidates right now for MVP, and then maybe your runner-ups or your honorable mentions, what would that look like? Well, I think um, Nicole Jokic has to be there. I think whether you have him at one or three or, you know, whatever the case may be, he has to be in your top three. Um, if he's not in your top three, then I think that's um, – then you're just wrong. That's that's the bottom line. Um, and at two um, – I would say it's more of a 1A, 1B type of situation at the moment. Um, I would put Joel Embiid. Um, I think what he's been able to do over the past few months, um, just from a you know leadership standpoint, being able to galvanize this team that's gone through a bunch of injuries as well, that always plays a part in things, the narrative side of things. Oh, this guy's team was injured half the year, or whatever the case may be. That always plays a part in this MVP race, and this year is no different. Um, missing Tyrese Massey, missing James Harden, missing you know key rotation pieces. Um, I think that will help his case a lot this year, as well as him being able to stay healthy. He's been available for a lot of the year. I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to 
jinx him or anything. Knock on wood. Hopefully nothing bad happens. But up to this point, he's been available and he's been, you know, engaged every single night. And that's always been the biggest thing with Joel Embiid. Um, third, it's tough, but I would be kind of back and forth between Giannis Antetokounmpo and Jason Tatum. Um, I'll start with Giannis. I think, you know, Giannis early in the year, he had some trouble with, you know, efficiency, but he still, you know, led his team to being top three in the Eastern Conference all throughout the season. I think that means something, being able to win throughout. Um, obviously, Joel Embiid and the Sixers had a slow start, um, and the Bucks, without Chris Middleton, were still able to win games, be one of the top teams in the East. Um, and he was the biggest part of that. I think um, I'm going to kind of get into the weeds here a little bit. Um, with the shift that they've had in defensive philosophy, uh, we've talked about the Bucks a lot on this podcast about their emphasis on protecting the paint first and foremost with their drop cover and roll. Um, they've changed that a little bit. They're not helping off of shooters. Um, they're protecting the three-point line more, and that's putting more pressure on, you know, in pick-and-roll situations on those two guys defending the pick-and-roll. You're basically going playing 2v2 at that point. Um, the other guys are staying at home, and in those that 2v2 situation, you're expected to just, you know, hold up defensively. And Giannis has been the biggest part of that. Uh, he's been fantastic, in fact, in those situations. Um, and then Jason Tatum, I mean, he's done nothing but win all year long, and he's put up numbers. The numbers are MVP level. Um, I think the one thing that may be missing is, you know, that MVP-like moment on in a national TV setting. Um, we kind of saw him falter a little bit in that finals rematch against the Celtics in prime time um, and then kind of bounce back in the fourth quarter in their second matchup against the Warriors. But that first matchup was really rough. And in those type of matchups where you get that extra amount of viewers because it's on national TV on prime time, you want to perform well because those are the times where the MVP narrative really shifts around you. Um, so that would be my top three, four right now. Yeah, I agree with you. I'd put Jokic one. I mean, I think he is my, not my clear runaway number one. He's not a runaway, but I would put him one right now, considering he's averaging a triple-double. Uh, where are the stats that I wanted to? Uh, here we go. He's averaging a triple-double, 25 points, 11 and a half rebounds. Ten assists, something only Oscar Robertson and, of course, Russell Westbrook have done over the course of a full season. Denver is atop of the Western Conference, and he's putting up those numbers on great efficiency. He's shooting 63.2% overall, almost 40% from three-point range at 39%, and 82% from the line. And he's also only shot under 50% once in a game this year. Only once has he shot under 50%. In the game this year, Denver's atop the Western Conference, and Jokic is leading the charge. I 
put Embiid right behind him. I mean, he's right behind Jokic for leading the league in points per game. Uh, the six, I mean, he's been healthy, as you mentioned, for most of the year. Um, and, I mean, he's just flat out fun to watch. And I think if the narrative shifts here um, down the stretch and Denver doesn't end up finishing with the number one seed or something changes, uh, and we always know that people who vote on this stuff like the new the new guy. So uh, I'd put Embiid right behind him. And to me, it's really hard to choose between Tatum and Giannis for that four spot. I mean, the Bucks are on a 12-game win streak. I believe Giannis hurt his, hand, or his wrist tonight. We'll see where that goes. But, um, I mean, Tatum, outstanding year, averaging 30 points per game. He's averaging career highs in points, rebounds, and assists. His team has the best record in the league. Uh, he's been absolutely fantastic. I believe he's elevated himself into a top six player in the NBA at this point in time. And then Giannis, of course, the best player in the league, in my opinion, uh, doing what he does, averaging 32 and 12 and five assists with the Bucks on an absolute heater right now. Um, to me, it's really like a pick and choose between, I mean, pick your poison between Giannis and Tatum. Um, so I think we're about the same, but I would have Jokic number one as of right now with Embiid right behind him on his tail and then pick and choose between Tatum and Giannis. Yeah. And um, I just want to add a couple things about Jokic. I think the narrative around him sometimes kind of, you know, revolves around, Oh, he's just, you know, a stat sheet stuffer. You know, he, he, he's good in the numbers, but he can't defend yada, yada, yada. I mean, this guy never has bad games. You mentioned um, the fact that he's only had one game under 50% shooting. I don't think people understand how incredible that is. Yeah. And also, just from a standpoint of there is not a single game where you're able to mitigate his impact on the Denver Nuggets offensively. Not only is he available every night, he never gets injured. Again, knock on wood. Don't want to jinx it. But um, he just has so many different ways to affect the game offensively. Just um, whether it be, you know, his passing ability, obviously, but it goes deeper than that. Um, just his ability to make the offense move in a cohesive manner. He's the engine behind that. Um, we talk about that a lot with point guards, but he's unique in the fact that from the high post, he can just control everything around around him in an offense. He's just kind of a fulcrum point that everyone revolves around. Everyone's cutting constantly, and it's constant motion. Um, it's And it's honestly beautiful to watch. Um, and then another thing that's underrated is just his coordination and his ability to conduct a fast break at seven feet tall. Um, right. He grabs a rebound consistently and will just push the ball up the floor with his handle and just make pinpoint passes to shooters and cutters um, running full speed. Like it's nothing. Um, and things like that kind of go under the radar. Cause he, it doesn't look like he's moving fast, but it's just it's just unbelievable feat what he's able to do. 
yeah, he's – there are very few of these type guys in the league right now. There are a lot of great players, but in my opinion, there are very few what I would call force multipliers in the league right now. They affect the game in like almost every single way you can on the offensive end, not only scoring the ball, but as you – I mean, everything you just mentioned, on the fast break, handling the ball. Uh, obviously, his passing ability is unreal, maybe the best that we've ever seen. Um, from everything he does, his efficiency, his shot selection, making everyone better around him. I mean, aside from like LeBron and a couple other guys, he's like one of those guys who just has that impact on the game that just, I mean, you can see it. He makes everybody better. So, and that's the reason Denver, I mean, they're, they're a really good team, but they're, they're, I mean, that's why they're first in the West and they have the third best record in the league right now. Uh, of course, um, I think it's Boston and Milwaukee and then it's, uh, Denver. So, uh, yeah. So with that, I mean, is there anything we need to say about Embiid? Uh, I think we covered the Tatum Giannis conversation or can we move on to rookie of the year? Um, no, I, I think I think that's that's it. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's, so, yeah, let's shift gears here to rookie of the year. Sorry, so I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but uh, let's shift gears here to our rookie of the year conversation to close the show. Um, it's been it's been a pretty interesting race. There's been a lot of really solid rookies, but to me, there's just been one guy at the top of the food chain above everybody else. And that's Paulo Bancaro. He started he started off the year red hot. He's kind of cooled off a bit since then. Um, but to me, he he's the guy in this draft class that has the ability to elevate um, into super superstar status. And that's not to say that other players won't do that. But I just think in Paulo Bancaro's case, he is. As soon as he walked into the building, he was immediately the face of the franchise and the star on that team. Um, obviously, there's other players that have stepped up, Franz Wagner being one of them. But Paolo Bancaro, his you know ability to create off the dribble at 6'10", um, his post control. Um, as a young player, you don't often see guys being able to... Um, make plays out of the post uh, with different hook shots, different releases, that type of thing. Um, and he has all of that in his bag already. I think that's what separates him. Just his offensive arsenal as a scorer um, is what sets him apart. And that's what really puts him a tier above everyone else in this class at the moment. Um, at number two, though, um, it's definitely Benedict Matherin. If you look at the impact he's had on that Pacers team, um, coming in as the, I believe, sixth or seventh overall pick, um, not the highest of expectations, um, but his ability to attack the rim and just his relentlessness, just from what I've watched of him, um, his first step is a lot better than what I had thought um, coming out of Indiana. But it's not just that. I think 
what makes Benedict Matherin great is his mindset as a scorer. Um, like I said, he's relentless attacking the paint and he's able to, you know, put a lot of pressure on the defense. And I think that rim pressure next to a guy like Tyrese Halliburton is a really good fit. And they kind of feed off of each other in that way. Um, but um, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. What, who do you think, who do you have as your rookie of the year thus far? Well, it's definitely Ben Caro, number one. I mean, a lot of the things that you mentioned as the resident low-key diehard college basketball fan on this on this podcast, I watched a lot of him at Duke. And, you know, a lot of things he's doing now, he was doing at Duke just to a lesser extent. Um, and I think the thing that benefits him the most as opposed to some of these other more scrawny guys who come into the league with their bodies not fully developed yet and they got to get stronger. I think he came with a good frame already established, and I think that's benefited him. His strength, his ability to, you know, um, as you mentioned, in the post. I mean, I think that benefits him. And, I mean, you look at what he's doing, averaging just under 20 points per game. The Magic have already uh, surpassed their win total from last season. They're 24 and 35, only four games out of a play-in spot. About it's going to be tough to get there because uh, there's only about 23 games left after the All Star break, and you got to make up some serious ground. But I mean, just to have this franchise going in a positive direction with a piece that they can build around, leading all rookies in points, field goal attempts, free throw attempts, uh, minutes. Uh, I believe he's leading in scoring average as well. I mean, he's just flat out, I think, the best rookie that we've seen so far. So I put him number one just based on the, the team's improvement and his individual success. Um, and Matherin's an interesting guy coming out of Arizona, a guy that I liked out of the draft. Uh, he's having a good season uh, with the Indiana Pacers. Um, I believe he is the – he became the Pacers' third fastest rookie to reach a thousand career points. Um, he's really good, uh, and his athleticism of, is what stands out to me. Um, but he's an interesting guy to watch. And then guys on like the fringes. I mean, there are a lot of good rookies in this class, even if they're not particularly in contention for the Rookie of the Year award. The guy that I been really fascinated with, that I think the Jazz are excited about—that's not necessarily in this conversation. Uh, I don't think to actually win the award is Walker Kessler. Um, he's a guy who's fantastic on the defensive end, comes out of Auburn, started his college career at UNC, then transfers to Auburn, really uh, stepped onto the scene last year at Auburn as a guy who led all of college basketball in blocks and deflections, and it wasn't even close. Uh, he's the best rim protector, and he's a guy right now that's averaging nine points, about eight rebounds, two blocks that I think will only get better as time goes on. Uh, he's got a lot to work with, with his frame, his body. He's a big body, pretty athletic for a guy his size. Uh, he's just a really good, solid young player that's come out of this rookie class. The Jazz got him number 22 overall. So uh, I really like him. 
And then, obviously, I mean, you look at some other guys. Keegan Murray for the Sacramento Kings, he's an interesting one. Uh, obviously, Jabari Smith down in Houston, but Jaden Ivey with the Pistons as well. Yeah, um, another guy who's caught my eye is Shaden Sharp. Um, I mean, he's had some incredible dunks this year, including one the other night. Um, I believe it was against the Lakers, I think, but it doesn't matter. Um, the point is he's just – he's got insane bounce, and it's a shame that he uh, opted out of the dunk contest because, man, I mean, having him in the dunk contest would immediately uh, not only – impose me to watch but i mean i think it would just immediately raise the ceiling on the quality of the dunk contest right away yeah for sure no the, the rookie class is interesting and we'll we'll talk more about it and then obviously this next draft is going to be something to behold but um yeah i mean be sure to look out for more content i think that's probably going to wrap it up right around an hour 25 an hour 30 minutes do you have anything else you want to say? Um, just one thing. I've been saying this for a while, but I'm for real this time. I'm going to be posting on TikTok. So be sure to go follow us over there. Uh, we're under Raw Prospect Podcast. I'm going to be posting clips, um, possibly from this podcast, but I think um, just clips from our entire, entire catalog. Um, I think particularly from some of our some of the brackets we did before the season for the NFL or even for the NBA, um, stuff like that. I think that could go really well on TikTok. Um, and if you could support us over there, that would really be appreciated. Um, and that's it. All right. Well, that was definitely a fun episode. Real quick, like, subscribe, do all those things. You can find us all the usual places, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Twitch now, um, TikTok, social media. Uh, we're trying to get better, uh, posting content everywhere in a timely fashion. Uh, we appreciate y'all tuning in either live. We're doing a lot of live streams now, which I think is fun. Um, and then also going back and watching these afterwards. We really appreciate that. Be sure to check out um, or be on the lookout for an NBA episode probably in about two weeks, three weeks, uh, where we're going to touch on Western Conference tiers. we got to see how some of these trades work out after the All-Star break first uh, to see where they get a feel for the, uh, some of these new pieces. Um, but we will be doing the Western Conference tiers here in the next three weeks along with more college basketball content that is on the way very soon. And be sure you check out the Longhorn Deep Dive. I recorded my first episode on Tuesday night. Um, so check out that. That is on YouTube on our channel. Uh, the next episode will probably be tomorrow or Saturday. So be on the lookout for that. And I guess um, just like the chances of – or just like the college baseball offseason and just like the NFL season, um, we are going, going, gone. Peace, Peace out. out.